0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles hunting podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. I'm your host, Dan Johnson, and on this podcast you will find tons of relevant information that will help you become more successful in the field. You'll hear product information directly from the manufacturer and success stories from guys and gals just like you. Sit back, relax, and pour a stiff drink. This episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast starts right now. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. I tell you what, it is absolutely crazy weather out there. I mean, we go from... Uh, Above freezing to below freezing, a lot of the snow melted. Uh, Now it's refrozen, and um, I've been driving around uh, the part of the the state that I live and hunt in this over this weekend. And man, there is a lot of water, and there is a lot of snow. And once we actually start getting a really good thaw, and uh, this part of the state is going to see a lot of high water. We're going to see a lot of farmers struggling to get crops in this spring and there are even a handful of farmers just in the route I take to get to the property that I hunt who still have crops in the field from this pre- this past fall simply because the weather has been shitty right there was a lot of rain this fall a lot of guys couldn't get out then it froze then it thawed then it froze a lot of snow you know this this cycle and uh man i just really feel sorry for i i don't i don't really feel sorry for them they know what they're getting into and they deal with it every year uh, and every year you hear these uh stories about oh you know uh, the farmers are struggling to uh uh, get their crops in the field but they always do right they always make it happen they always make it work so kudos to those those guys uh and and the career that they've picked but the deer right i, I the i was down in the part of the area where i i uh i hunt and all this rain that we recently had melted a majority of the snow so uh today when I was driving home through this area, I I was like, oh, I was really itching to get out and start uh, looking for sheds, but I had, uh, it was my daughter's birthday weekend this, uh, this weekend, she turned six, and I'm telling you right now, I cannot believe how fast the last six years of my life has been and how fast my family has grown and how fast life is happening and man, I, I always say you gotta slow down and enjoy it and it's not happening like, you can't slow down life I was talking uh, with my father-in-law uh, who is 69 years old he's getting ready to turn 70 in October and he told me I, I blink and I thought I was 45 again And here I am 70. So that's how fast life goes by. And my kids are growing so fast. And all these crazy things in my life are happening. And you blink and you're having your daughter's sixth birthday. I can literally remember the moment they pulled my daughter out of my wife and set her on this, you know, set her on my wife's chest and my daughter's... She didn't cry. I thought something was wrong. She didn't cry for like the first 24 hours of her life. Just calm. Eyes wide open all the time. Looking around. She would sleep. She would nurse. And she would go back. But she never cried. Not one time. In like the first 24 hours. And I can remember her, you know, laying on my wife's chest. And she was looking at me. I, I know for a fact that we made eye contact, right? And... I look at my I look at my daughter. She's looking back at me, and she smiles. Right now, they say that a uh, uh, a baby can't smile. She doesn't know how to smile. Her muscles don't know how to smile. Like all the emotion and stuff. But if I was a bet man, I would say that was a smile. And from that moment on, you know, my life changed, and the game was over. Like at that moment, I knew that part of my life was i was meant to be a father and specifically to that girl and you know since then i I have two more kids and it is a blessing every single day and i i bitch a lot about it on my podcast i bitch about it on uh the wired to hunt podcast more as a joke but it's like parenting is really difficult and I, I sit there and I joke about, you know, like, well, there's feces on the floor or they color on the wall or they they hit each other or they fight and, or there's no sleep. But I was reminded this weekend that every second of that is worth it because of how fast life is going. And I feel myself getting frustrated with my kids sometimes. And I have to realize that that is... That's the small stuff, right? You have to enjoy every single moment. And uh, hopefully the parents out there or the people thinking about having it, uh, having kids someday get to experience the, the feels, the quote unquote feels that I have for my children and, and my wife and my family, because I am, you know, people say they're blessed a lot and I don't know. I don't know what that means Really? But what I do know is that I am happy with my life in that range. Like I I just, I am so happy that I have a healthy family. I have a a healthy children, healthy parents, healthy in-laws and and family. And I know I'm going off on a crazy tangent on this, but it's very important for me to say these things because in the grand scheme of things, your family trumps everything in life. It, It trumps your job it trumps this passion of deer hunting, right? Cuz make no mistake about it, if it comes down to deer hunting or my family, I'm going to choose my my family every single time, right? If there was this crazy ultimatum that had to be made and I had to ch- I had to choose between bow hunting or hunting and fishing in the outdoors, but I got to keep my family and all this stuff, if there was that This crazy ultimatum that, you know, these hypothetical situations, I I choose my family every single time. I'm just lucky that my family enjoys the same passion that I do, right? Uh, Not to the extent that I do, but um, I don't know. It's just a lot of things in my life are in, in, in life in general are crazy. There's no, it can change. It can change in the drop of a hat the snap of fingers, a blink of an eye. Life changes, and, um, I just want to be, I don't want to regret anything at the end. I've regretted too much of my life already. I want to change that. I want to move forward in a positive, uh, a very positive light and bring my family with me and just enjoy everything about life, uh, to, to the fullest every single day. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, I, sorry for the tangent, But we do have a really good podcast today, right? We're going to be joined by Danny Ard, and uh, he's going to talk—this is a a BS session, right? It's a good old-fashioned bullshit session, and we are going to talk about his kind of journey uh, as a hunter, right? Uh, He hunts the Appalachians. Uh, He talks about, like, crazy hikings, like miles and miles hiking in to try to find good sign. He talks about his transition from— uh, kind of being a your your average Joe tree stand hunter to being more of a mobile, run-and-gun type hunter. He talks about a trip to Africa. We talk about his service in the military. We just kind of talk a little bit about everything which makes for a really good BS session. And speaking of mobile hunting, uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about Lone Wolf. You guys know that I am an avid Lone Wolf uh, user, right? Lone Wolf Hunting com. That's the website. So if you want to find out more information about why I love Lone Wolf tree stands, Lone Wolf Portable Tree Stands, Lone Wolf Hunting is the website you need to go check out. Um, I'm a huge fan of the assault. It is 100% of the reason being mobile and having a, a great tree stand to be mobile with. It's 100% of the reason why I killed the buck that I killed this year so uh, I think everybody needs to go check out check it out and uh, if you do decide to purchase from lonewolfhuntingproducts.com enter the discount code 9FC50 and you will save $50 off of all orders over 200 bucks so that's a, a, a really good a really good discount there so This has been a very long intro. I do apologize. Uh, So enough of the chit chat. Let's just get into today's BS session podcast with Danny Ard. All right, on the phone with me right now, Mister Danny Ard. How you doing, man?
1: Good, Dan. How are you?
0: Can't complain. Too much snow. I'm done with it.
1: Yeah, we just got hit uh, today, actually. Not as much as you guys are getting out there, but it's still too much. Yeah. Uh, despite what people say, it is hard
0: to, to shed hunt in like 10 inches of snow on the ground.
1: I agree. Yeah, like I was uh, saying before, man, I had to get my dog out there yesterday and try to find a couple before we got hit with a storm. So luckily I found a couple sheds, but awesome. definitely wasn't what I, what I expected. Yeah.
0: So why don't you tell everybody where you're from
1: and what do you do for a living? Um, I'm from Northern Virginia. Um, I was actually raised in Alaska, but um, when I got out of high school, I, I joined the Army and did about eight years in the Army. Um, had one uh, one deployment to Iraq, and then after that, um, I decided to get out and ended up joining the fire department. So I've been a paramedic firefighter now for about uh, for about 13 years, and okay. uh, other than that, been. Bow hunting for about ten years. Nice. So, question: yeah.
0: Do you have any crazy stories, either with the military or with uh, being a, a paramedic or firefighter, that you can share with us? Because I
1: always like hearing some of these crazy <laughs> stories. Uh, yeah, I, I do. Um, I don't. I can't think of anything right off the top of my head that's appropriate for all viewers. <laughs> <laughs> I got gotcha.
0: you. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yeah I, I uh I have a I had a buddy um who he did in he was a paramedic. He did some kind of internship. I wanna say it was Kansas City. That doesn't sound right, but it was a bigger city. And I'm just like, hey man, you got any crazy horse like crazy stories you can share with me? And he's just like, uh people come in shot and stabbed all the time. And it's yeah. it's so common that it's not even a crazy story anymore.
1: Right, yeah, I guess I can relate to some of that. Um, our biggest thing right now is the heroin epidemic. So uh, any overdose for somebody, somebody uh, puts breathing on us, that's really just kind of a, almost a routine call for us now. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. All right, so you went to, Oh, you,
0: did you say Iraq for a deployment?
1: Yeah, my, you know, my last year in the military, I, I did one combat tour in Iraq. Nice. So uh, my buddy
0: went to Iraq um I don't even know what uh, were you in the army or National Guard or what were you in
1: I was active duty army
0: active duty army okay gotcha so uh what was it like over there
1: I think I couldn't really compare it to anything but it was if I was going to describe Baghdad Iraq which is where I was um it was definitely very dirty it was kind of like the wild west in a a certain way because you know police didn't really have things in check i guess for lack of better terms um you know it was it was definitely dangerous it wasn't like i remember back then when i was when i was in and serving i remember when i saw the news when i came home and the news kind of made it look like it was vietnam and there was you know if you were going to leave the leave the camp itself or the fob is what we called it that you're guaranteed to get shot at. And it wasn't always like that. I mean, we definitely had our skirmishes and whatnot that we got into, but it wasn't as bad as what I thought the the press made it out to be. Gotcha. Yeah. So,
0: whenever, whenever you hear, you know, hear, hear about the war on uh, or you see pictures of it, they always share like the worst possible picture of like, all these dilapidated buildings with like gun gun holes in them and they've been blown up and bombs gone off. And, and, and is that, I mean, I'm sure there's parts of that, of the town of Baghdad that are like that, but it can't be
1: all the whole city, right? From what I remember, every part of the city that I saw was, was pretty, pretty, you know, beat up and dirty and whatnot. Um, There were some other areas that were, Better, well kept, I guess, especially where Saddam's palace was and yeah, um, those type of areas. But I didn't really venture through those very much, I guess, because I was needed more where you know things were a little little nastier. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. How old were you yeah. when, when you
0: were in uh, when you were on deployment? I was 26 years old, I believe. Okay, 20, yeah, 26. How old are you now? I'm 41. 41. Okay, so it's been it's yeah. been a handful of years, huh?
1: Yeah, yeah, it it has.
0: Yep. So how old were you then uh, when you started
1: getting into hunting? I was, I want to say, it's been about 10 years now. So I was about early 30s, 31 years old, maybe 32 at the oldest. Yeah. So compared to most
0: people, uh, you kind of were a little late to the game, what got, like, what was the reason that made you say, hey, I want to be a hunter?
1: I think it just looked really interesting to me. And I had hunted a little bit when I was a kid, uh, mostly, mostly small game stuff. I went big, da- big game hunting with my dad a few times, um, but I was, at that age, I was more concerned with, you know, typical teenager stuff, I guess, hanging out with my friends and, you know chasing girls or whatnot, not going to the gun range like I should have with my dad if we're getting ready for a caribou hunt and yeah. You know, I, I never was successful but I had a good time fishing with my buddies and my, you know, dad and brother. Gotcha. But when I when I got into hunting about ten years ago, I had actually been living in Baltimore City as a young firefighter and I was kind of, you know, hitting the bar scene a lot and I just kinda decided this you know, this whole city life was just not for me. I was going to, you know, end up ruining my liver and my paycheck if I stayed <laughs> in the city. So, <laughs> so I ended up uh, running away from the city, and I rented this farmhouse out in the country. I think it sat on about 100 acres. And I had a, uh, I had a roommate at the time who was into the, into the bow hunting scene. So I just kind of decided to pick his brain, and I told him, hey, I'm interested in hunting deer I just don't really know what I'm doing, and I'm—I don't really see myself grabbing a bolt-action rifle. And you know, I—I I wanted to be kind of challenging. I—I I, I thought about using a muzzle loader, and I bought a cheap muzzle loader from Bass Pro. Didn't know what I was doing, and I kept screwing it up. With I think the the black powder got too much moisture in at one time, and then another time I—I I think I overloaded the black powder. Another time I underloaded it, and. It just wasn't working out for me. So he said, well, hey, I got this old hand-me-down Hoyt bow. He said, if you want to, you know, you can put a little bit of money into it, take it to a bow shop, get it set up to your draw length, and get some arrows and whatnot for it. And that's what I ended up doing. He kind of showed me what to do, helped me hang a tree stand up there on, the, on that farm. And uh, I went out there, and I think on my second or third sit, I had a, a spike and a doe come walking by, and they actually walked right underneath my tree. I went ahead and drew back on this doe at 15 yards right after I stopped her and hit her right behind the shoulder, and she ran off. and I think that was probably the biggest surge of adrenaline that I've ever had, more so with my job in the fire department and more so than what I had when I was deployed to Iraq in the military. Wow, And that, that right there just that had me hooked right then and there. Um wow, yeah, ever since then man you can't you can't keep me out of the woods that's awesome that's a that's a
0: pretty good first experience now, you know a lot of people decided you know decide to start with a gun and then transition you know to yeah. archery. Why did you decide you know I want to do archery first?
1: I think mostly because I'm not against hunting with firearms, in fact, I've picked up a rifle before and hunted. With, with a firearm and, and still had a really good time with it. But I went to something a little more challenging or something that at least seemed more challenging. And a yeah. bow and arrow just, just looked like, you know, the, the way to go for me. Right. So when you picked up that bow
0: for the first time and started shooting it, you know, you took it to the bow shop. How, yeah. how long did it take you to get comfortable to the point where you're like, you know what, I, I feel like I can go and try to kill a deer now?
1: I want to say probably about. I think I shot for about maybe two or three months. With uh, with my work schedule, though, being off for three days in a row, you know, I I could shoot every single day and almost all day if I had if I didn't have anything else going on. So I was ready to at least comfortably shoot something at twenty yards after about three months. Anyway. Gotcha. gotcha. Yeah.
0: So then, at that point. Uh, you, you became comfortable. You went out. You killed a deer. Uh, was that on your first time out you ever bow hunting? I think you killed it was, a
1: deer. I think it was actually my second or third. Okay. I think the first time that I went out there, I had some does that came running by right at uh, right at last light, and I wasn't ready at all whatsoever. I was sitting there messing with my phone, and and when they came trotting by, they. You know, I was like, well, do I, you know, try to stop them or do I just fling an arrow at them? I did not know what to do, so I just let them go. Yeah. I was too worried I was going to screw it up and either wound one or miss one or, you know, anything of that nature. Yeah, Yeah.
0: absolutely. All right. So, so, you know, your first, your quote unquote first time out, whether that was the first time or, you know, second or third time out, you, you got successful. Once you actually killed the deer- did that open your eyes to, Hey man, I want to do this all the time. Or did it, did it not
1: get as serious right off the bat? I think right off the bat, I think it was almost like my, I think my ears pinned back a little bit my teeth got a little sharper and uh, I just wanted more. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I was, I was excited to go out there the, the very next day if I could and, and do it all again. But, I think I celebrated a little bit too hard that first night with that first deer that I got. So I wasn't getting anything done the next day, but, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's but funny. Yeah, man. after that, every chance that I had, I was out there in the woods in a tree stand and I didn't even care if there was a tornado warning out there. I wanted to be out there, even though everybody else would tell me, no, you're not going to see any deer. You just couldn't keep me out of the woods. <laughs> okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, let's see here. So, so after, you know, that first year finding success in the timber, what were like the next, you know, what what was the next five years like? I mean, did you continue to go out and do the same thing or did you try to educate yourself more on not necessarily going out and killing a doe, but trying to kill bucks, trying to kill big mature bucks, trying to uh, locate deer beds? Did you do any type of, uh, I guess, training?
1: I did, but it wasn't really to the extent that I did over the last couple of years. I want to say probably about five or six years after that, that first deer that I took, I was watching the hunting channel all the time. And, you know, I thought that was what, you know, big buck hunting was. Um, I wasn't really noticing that these guys that are on the, on the hunting channels are more than likely hunting you know, a large ranch where the, the deer kind of controlled with their numbers. And it was a lot different than the public land hunting. Uh, so I had a lot of sits out there where I was lucky if I saw does, I killed some bucks over that, over that next few years. They just weren't anything. They weren't giants or anything. Yeah. Um, and with that being said, I'm still in the process right now trying to, I want to take that you know, that, uh, large caliber whitetail, like, like the deer of the lifetime kind of thing. Yeah. So, and lately over the last couple of years, I've kind of gotten more into listening to more podcasts, reading more books about it, uh, scouting a lot harder, trying to find out where the bucks bed, try to find out where they travel based on what time of year and what the acorns are doing, et cetera. Right. Okay. So
0: what would you say in the last, you know, specifically bow hunting, or maybe there's a takeaway of hunting in general, what has been one of the biggest, whether it was an aha moment, or maybe it was a whole bunch of little moments that have been refined to, you know, be a, a good lesson for you, so to speak.
1: I think most of it was, uh, anytime that I actually, saw deer or had success on deer. I guess you could call those kind of aha moments because I kind of thought to myself, myself, wow, you know, this, this really worked. And a lot of that I think was based on uh, finding out where they bed. Um, But the main thing is when I learned how to find fresh sign and get set up on fresh sign with the wind in my favor, that was the big aha moment. When I, when I discovered that, that was kind of a a game changer. In fact, I'd say it was a huge game changer for me. So you located,
0: uh, you, you educated yourself to look for sign and set up, uh, set up on that sign or downwind of that sign. And, uh, was that something that instantly started working for you? Like you saw way more deer once you started doing that?
1: I would say, yes. I, I, my, my numbers of you know, the amount of deer that I saw while out there in the tree, it, it, it did increase once I, once I learned how to set up on sign and, and play the wind. Yeah.
0: Okay. Um, how many times would you say throughout that, that whole, that, that time period where you're teaching yourself to play the wind, would you say you failed and got busted?
1: To tell you the truth, I, I can't even count how many times <laughs> I and got busted. <laughs> so even though you're even though you're out there playing the wind you you can't predict what the wind's gonna do we just don't have any control over it you know so there were times where i would look at the weather channel and look at the app on my phone and say okay the wind's doing this and i get out there you know i'm you know checking the wind on my way in and i get all set up and everything and you know an hour later the wind does a complete 180 on me and either i don't see anything or Or that, uh, that group of does is walking right by the stand. You know, they end up winding me and huffing and puffing and running off and, and that's it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So when you say you started, you know, once you
0: started setting up on sign and playing the wind, um, you know, that's a really good combination and you started seeing more deer. Did you also start getting more deer into shooting range because of that?
1: I would say yes, I I did. Mostly Doe's and and younger bucks. Um, but yeah, I I did start seeing a, a lot more a lot more deer once I started taking those two factors and you know, playing those on the playing cards. It it, it definitely paid for itself as far as seeing more deer. Gotcha. So yeah,
0: you've you've mentioned that you go and set up on fresh shine and you also hunt some public ground which leads me to believe that you're trying to
1: be a mobile hunter very much indeed yes Uh, the mobile hunting thing is primarily what i do Um, gotcha i also hunt an an urban area in northern virginia where we're allowed to set up our tree stands for the season so i i also do on, on public land as well i do a lot of Scouting in the off season, just like I think a lot of us do. As soon as the season's over, with we're out there looking for sheds, looking for sign, you know, where are the scrapes, where are the buck beds, etc. And setting up a tree stand based off of that stuff, I don't think it's always guaranteed. Um, I had some sits in the past where that's the that's the hand that I played on my on my hunting cards, and I went out there and set up over that. You know what I thought was really awesome based off of what I found back in the postseason and I was lucky if I saw a crop a crow fly over my head it was you know it was a ghost town yeah yeah those days happen man um, yeah
0: so when it comes to you know now you, you mentioned uh, the the mobility factor did you start off? Because on the email you sent to me, you mentioned you start, you've started using a saddle, but did yes. you start off with a climber or did you start off with like a hang on and sticks? What was your initial mobile setup?
1: My initial mobile setup was, was a hang on. Oh no, I'm sorry. it was a climber. Um, and it was, I think XOP, is it XOP? No. XStand XStand made it. Okay. Yeah. And I was all kinds of excited because I found one as light as 12 pounds. <laughs> um, but I had a lot of issues with, with a climber. There were times where I found fresh sign and you know, I couldn't set up over that fresh sign because either I couldn't get the cables all the way around the tree or there are too many branches in the way. And I, you know, I, I was lucky if I could get up to eight feet. So, but I, I killed some deer out of that climber. Just, it just wasn't, wasn't as mobile as I wanted it to be because I still had to basically, it's almost like I was hunting the trees and not hunting the sign anymore right yeah and that's a big
0: that's a big problem in if in my yeah. opinion with climbing tree stands is yeah now in the south i talked to these guys where you know they they hunt these pine thickets and the trees are all straight and they're all you know you can climb up 10 15 20 feet in them and yeah. not encounter another branch where where i hunt right. in iowa if i i have to have Stand and sticks in order to get into some of these trees, unless yep. I'm going to be cutting, you know, a six-inch limb off an oak tree or, or something like that, which isn't going to happen. Yeah, same, same here. So, um, so then, which, so then, you decided to move to a a saddle, and this is this is yes. a buzzword or a, a, it's starting to gain in popularity right now. And I noticed that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So my question to you is, why did you decide to go from a climber? to a
1: saddle? The, the main reason was based off of YouTube videos. I think you know, maybe a book or two that I read and some research online on, especially on saddlehunter.com with that, with that mobile setup, with that, with that tree saddle, the number one factor for me is the terrain that I hunt here in Northern Virginia and West Virginia It's basically considered mountainous terrain. I'm hunting elevations of, I think my, my highest is about 3,600 feet. Okay. So weight means everything to me. <laughs> Even if it's a pound, if I can shed a pound here and there, I'll, I'll I definitely will if I'm not going to need it. So that saddle wrapped around my waist, I think it only weighs about two pounds versus a you know versus a a, a heavy tree stand or or whatever. Um, so that was the weight was was the main factor as well as the mobility as being able to get up into any tree that I, that I want to, that was, that was another, another factor. Yeah. Um, another big plus too is when I'm up there in that tree and the terrain that I hunt, it doesn't matter if I, I could get to the very top of a 80 foot tree. And it's not going to matter if those deer are coming down the hill towards me because they're, you know, I'm, I'm at eye level with them. So as what I can do in that saddle is I can set myself up, and move around that tree if I have to to actually hide myself from the deer. And then if they happen to surprise me and pop out on a side that I don't expect, I can actually maneuver all the way around that tree to make a shot. Gotcha. So
0: how long how long it, did it uh, take you to learn how to use a saddle? It didn't
1: take me very long, I don't think. It took. It, there was a learning curve, but I think you know you just had to. I just had to practice it a little bit. And I would go out there this last summer, I think I think I bought my my first saddle in the spring, or maybe early summer, and I felt comfortable in it by the time hunting season came around. So I'd say after about a month of practicing climbing up and shooting from it, after about a month, maybe two months at the most, I felt pretty comfortable in it and gotcha. to shoot from it.
0: Have you had any scenarios where the saddle or any positions that you were in where you were in a saddle and you weren't able to make the shot because the deer came in from a,
1: a specific angle or direction? No, certainly not. Okay. After, after some research online and YouTube videos and some help from some other guys on saddlehunter.com, which is, I'm sure you might've heard of it. It's the website for their saddle hunting, uh, forum. Um, I learned all kinds of different tricks from those guys on how to, you know, how to get yourself around the other side of the tree and still take a nice steady shot. And it it worked out pretty good. I thought. Gotcha. Yeah. You know, I find that intriguing
0: and, but every time I think about, Hey, giving a saddle a try, I keep going back to the deer that I shot this year. And I don't think that I would have been able to, do what I did in a tree stand in a saddle from, from the time that this buck showed up to the time that I shot it was somewhere around 30 or 40 seconds. Right. So it was under, he came in from behind me on my, on my non draw side or on my draw side. So that means I would have had to turn my body all the way and i was facing the tree right so i had to turn my body all the way around and at four yards four or five yards i'm almost positive he would have heard me or saw me uh in the tree uh and then when i did finally get to a point where i could draw back he was behind some branches so i had to change levels and drop down in my tree stand like kind of squat in my tree stand and okay. I, I don't know if I could have done if I could have pulled that shot off with uh, while in a saddle, which yeah, that scenario alone makes me hesitant to even try one. And I'm not I'm not sitting okay. here trying to bash the saddle. Yeah. I'm just saying that specific example. I'm not sure if I could have pulled that off or not.
1: Right. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not pro saddle and I'm not anti tree stand. You know, I think oh, yeah. everybody everybody has their own preference on what they want to use works better for this and that and each individual hunter. Um, but you know, based on what you're telling me it, you know, I I'd have to be in your shoes at that time to say, you know, yeah, I could make it happen or not make it happen. You know? Yeah. So I think there's been times where I was in a tree stand and I couldn't get a shot because of this situation or that situation. If I was on a tree saddle, maybe it would have been better. But right. then again, vice versa. This is only my first season hunting out of a tree saddle, so. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, this, yeah I'm, I'm still learning, you know, what, uh, what all I can and can't do with it. Absolutely. Well,
0: you know, it's one of those things where to each their own, and uh, I know some guys who absolutely love them right they absolutely yeah. love them and and you know like you said going up huge inclines to get to some of your tree stand or you know some of your trees uh your yeah. hunting locations you know weight does matter for me in iowa like i if if i ever start bitching about having to hike in a half a mile or even let's say the longest i may have to walk to one of the, on the farms that i hunt yeah. uh, is maybe three quarters of a mile uh, if I ever oh, start man. bitching about having to walk on fairly flat ground with, you know, a lone wolf and four sticks on my back and complain that it's too heavy, well, yeah. I'm getting old at that point.
1: <laughs> yeah, I can I can definitely understand. Um, most of the places that I go to because it's public land is I'm looking at sometimes a six hour hike to get to them a six, through the mountains. Six yeah. hours. Yeah, at at the most, on average it's about 2 to 4 hours for most of most of these spots. Wait a second. You
0: you hike in 2 to 4 hours every single time?
1: Correct. I do, yes.
0: Holy shit. That yeah. is, that's crazy.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, that that's where that weight really matters. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely. Now, I was talking with a guy, man, this was Maybe late January, or it was, I think we did the podcast in January where he was doing like a a 2, like a, I want to say a a 3,500 or a 25, I know this is a big difference, but either 25 or 3,500 descent from the road down into this, you know, where the deer were at, and then having to hike back up it every night. Yeah, that's.
1: Yeah, that's, that's pretty rugged, pretty tough.
0: So I'm thinking that's the same kind of Appalachian hill country you're probably hunting in. Yeah, around like that.
1: It is. Yeah, pretty pretty uh, unforgiving terrain. Um, so are the deer? Ba- are are there deer all over, or
0: like you just decide to go back that deep and that far because
1: there's less hunters? And exactly. Quite frankly, you can do it. Yeah, and not only that, but it. Of course it keeps me in shape at my old age <laughs> 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 but uh but the main reason is I'm I'm trying to get to where the deer are I think I think most of your average hunters around where I am anyway on the public land they they park their truck and they you know hop out and they walk maybe oh I don't know two or three hundred yards and get set up and they sit there and they're lucky if they see a, a doe or two and, maybe a spike they shoot the first thing they see and then you know that's that's their uh that's their that's their public land hunting strategy right there which i don't see anything wrong with that they can do that all they want and to tell you the truth, the more that they stay closer to the road, that means the more success I might have out there further out. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no shit. You're hiking six hours. I mean. Yeah.
1: Well, that's, that's my farthest scenario is, is right. six hours.
0: Right. So know. how far from, Let's. I know there's probably some ups and some downs and some elevation gains and descents in, in, yeah. this, in these hikes. But how far, how many miles away from your truck does
1: two to four hours get you? You know, I'm not 100% sure. I think I tried to measure it out one time with this GPS app that I use on my phone, and I think it came out to a couple miles. Yeah. Man, that must maybe be some rugged terrain. What's that? That must be some rugged terrain. It, it is, yeah. And to tell you the truth, where, where I park, I normally start out on an old logging road. So sometimes I'm hiking for about maybe two, two and a half hours on a logging road. And then I... When I get to the base of the base of the hilltop or mountaintop that I want to get up onto, then it's about another, you know, two and a half, three hours or whatever to get up to the top. Yeah. Yeah. So, That's good. And a lot of that depends on, you know, what time it, like if I'm going out there for a morning hunt, you know, I'm out there at pitch black walking around with just a headlamp on trying to maneuver my way through all the thick, nasty mountain laurels and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. So, do you are you going back that far because there's more deer
1: back there and better quality of deer? That's that's basically what my firm belief has been. Um, this last year, it didn't really pay off the way that I wanted it to. So, being that far out, um, I think, like I was saying before, you know, you can go all the way out there thinking that all that scouting you did you know, last, uh, last postseason was going to pay off when I went out there, you know, on a, like one of my hikes was actually about a four or five hour hike on this area that I thought was just going to be awesome. Yeah. Um, you know, it had scrapes and rubs all over the place and I found bedding and I was like, okay, this is it. This is where I'm, you know, there's gotta be something big in here. And I'm looking at the rub size and everything. And I went out there and after a long hike through the pitch dark and fighting my way through mountain laurel and whatnot. And I didn't see anything, but I think I saw, I think I saw one squirrel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Man, um, my strategies, my strategy will probably change a little bit next season. I'm probably not going to be doing as many uh, morning hunts through the pitch black unless something changes my mind and I find another reason to. Um, but as what I'm going to do as I'm, I'm still going to scout postseason but i'm going to do more afternoon hunts where i can see so that i can pick up on fresh sign and if there's fresh sign in that area i'll hunt it if not then i'll either keep hiking or not waste a sit out there you know yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense that makes a lot of yeah.
0: sense all right yeah. so in the in the this group of pictures that you sent me you're you're holding a bear uh
1: is that yes.
0: also from
1: the area that you hunt it is yes yeah that was public land bear taken in uh taken in west virginia
0: okay so was yeah. that the same type of uh when when was that
1: bear harvested that was not this last season but the season before okay so was that and just a spot in stock no definitely was not a, a spot in stock what i had done is that summer out hiking around I wanted to take a black bear really bad with a bow. It was just the next thing on my bucket list. Yeah. So I was, you know, of course, reading more books about it and YouTube videos, just trying to gather all the information that I that I could. And I, was, I can't remember the name of the book or who the author was, but I read in his book about scouting tactics for black bears. And essentially, if you find an area that gets a lot of sun, um, there's not a lot of thick, stuff in the way to, to, to cover up the ground, which I guess causes more rainfall to get in there and more sunlight, which is gonna give that hillside more vegetation. And more vegetation, the more the bears like to go there and, and, uh, and eat you know, the natural vegetation growing there. Yeah. Then another thing to pick up on too that I found out in that book was look for these old rotted stumps or fallen trees And you can tell when a black bear has gotten onto one of these rotted away, uh, stumps or or fallen trees because they go in there and they just rip it apart looking for termites to eat. So I just scouted around looking for that kind of stuff all summer. And I found that plus plenty of bear scat and, uh, you know, I ended up going into, going into an area that, that I had pre scouted and got up there and I actually in a, in a I just happened to get lucky. I was set up just on the downwind side of where all this sign was. And at first I couldn't see him, but you can kind of tell, I don't know if you've ever been around many black bears where you're, I don't know if you guys have them or not, but no. if, uh, at first you kind of wonder like, okay, is that a, a deer? And then you're like, no, it actually sounds like a person walking. And that's kind of what I thought was that it was a, a person walking through the woods. So here I'm getting ready to, you know, kind of wave my arms and say, like, all right, here's this jerk that found out where I'm hunting? <laughs> and sure enough, this black bear comes out at, at uh, say, 40 yards, but the bear kept moving and went behind some more, some more uh, brush and trees. So I, you know, got my bow in my arm and I said, all right, Danny, let's see how this plays out. And he stopped right there at, at I think it's 10 or 12 yards. And it was kind of the bear was facing to my left, but its vitals were were behind a, a tree, probably about as oh, I don't know, about as big around as a basketball, I guess. And when it stepped out, I went ahead and came to full draw and put my pin right behind its shoulder, and it put it took that that front leg and had one step forward. and it was also kind of turned its head to the right, looking downhill and away from me. So I thought, all right, this is perfect. That bear just brought the shoulder blade out of the way, so I'm going to gonna let this broadhead fly right through its vitals. And I tell you what, right when I let that arrow fly, it snapped its head back to the left, pulled that shoulder blade back in the way, and I punched that arrow right into its shoulder blade. And I'm shooting those Luminox out of my bow, and this bear let off a snarl and looked back at, you know, almost like it looked back at my arrow wondering what it was that stung it. And just goes running off through the woods with my arrow sticking halfway out. <laughs> and this is also an evening hunt. So it was my first bear that I've ever ever shot or anything. I didn't really have much experience with, with black bears. So I texted one of my buddies that, that has some experience up there in the mountain and told him what happened. And he said, don't go tracking that bear without your pistol on you. I had brought him back and I said, hey, you, you know I've always got my... Got my handy pistol with me just because there's, you know, bears and stuff out there. But, right. And he said, if you're, but if you really want to play it smart, he said, just back out right now. And he said, try to sleep on it tonight and go back in there after tomorrow morning. And that night, I think we've all been there. If we've ever made a bad shot on any animal, I laid there playing the scenario through my head the entire night. Yeah. <laughs> Wondering, you know, what if this happened? What if that happened? You know, what if I did just get one lung? What if I got both lungs? And of course, I didn't sleep that whole night. And right at daybreak, I go out there and um, had my bow with me, had my pistol on my hip and had my binoculars. And I went back to where, where I knew I had shot the bear and started tracking them real slow from there. Had an arrow knocked at first, but had to put put the arrow back in the quiver because I had to actually crawl on all fours through a bunch of more nasty mountain laurel. Imagine that. And uh you know how when deer when they when they run, they kind of take the path of least resistance most of the time. Yeah. Yeah, not bears. <laughs> <laughs> so I finally tracked this thing. I think I looked on my GPS later, and it was three hundred and forty yards. And every time I saw something that would look like it might be a bear, I bring in my binoculars and look at it. Of course it always turned out to be a either a dark rock or a really dark tree stump or something. And after maybe the, I don't know, fourth or fifth time I raise up my binoculars. I told myself, all right, let's see what this stupid dark rock looks like. And I raise up my binoculars and I thought, well, it's a pretty, pretty hairy looking rock. So knocked an arrow again and crept up a little closer, got within 20 yards of it. I could tell it's laying on its side, but I didn't want to take any chances, so I threw a rock at it, and the bear didn't move. Just a bunch of dust came flying off of it. So I crept in a little closer and pulled the pistol out just in case if this thing were to rise up and you know try to take revenge on me or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I just wasn't taking any chances. <laughs> and he, the, the bear was as, as dead as can be. So how far from the uh, tree stand? Uh, about 340 yards, I think. Yeah. So, uh, so my, um, very wonderful, loving wife came out there to help me field dress this bear. And <laughs> you also have to, uh, you have to keep the proof of, of sex. Right. So they wanted DNR wanted me to pull out a, an ovary or something and, <laughs> So my wife, she's not much of a hunter, and here she is holding the legs open to this bear while I'm digging through a pile of guts <laughs> trying to find an ovary. And then, uh, and then we had to drag this thing out of the national forest, which took a lot more time than what I thought it would. Wow! And we also had to had to catch a flight that evening, and you know, my wife was not happy with me at all whatsoever. So I owed her a uh, a really nice, expensive dinner after that one. <laughs> yeah, I would. Uh... My wife has
0: yet to help me do any type of deer dragging or anything like that. So, uh, there's going to come a time where I think she's going to have, she's going to have to, but, uh, but, uh, just because I won't be able to call anybody else, she'll be the last person. I'm like, (laughs) you get your butt out here and you gotta, you gotta help me. So she won't be happy about it, but I'll I'll buy her something from the dollar menu
1: yeah there you go yeah or another thing that works too is i just i just keep the wine flowing afterwards. absolutely absolutely
0: <laughs> that's right so you shot a bear um yep. you've you've uh you're, you're starting to refine your your deer hunting strategy let me ask yes. you let me ask you this um uh, because you also sent me some pictures of you going to africa yes right? so I'm the kind of guy right now in my life where I'm just like, man, I want I want to hunt so many uh, North American game species that I don't want to go over to I, I don't want to go anywhere else. You know, if the op there, okay. if there was some kind of crazy opportunity, yes, maybe, but okay. I just me personally at this time I don't have any interest in going to Africa. Okay, am, am I am I wrong in saying that, or because I've talked to no. people who who have been like, dude. I thought the same thing. Then I went, and it's it's a game changer.
1: It certainly was a game changer for me, just because it was it was another hunting adventure, and if anything, it's a very memorable one for me because I got to hunt with my dad. Yeah, Um, and he's you know he's definitely very active and everything for his age, and you know it's not like he's circling a drain. He's you know in his mid sixties now, but. This is kind of our last chance for him and I to go on a really cool, you know, somewhere else in the world hunting trip, you know, before, you know, he can't do it anymore or I can't afford it anymore or whatever, which I don't think I'll be able to afford it again. But (laughs) how much did that trip cost you? Uh, Let's see. The hunting trip itself where they think I think it got me seven different species. The hunt itself was thirty five hundred. Okay, um, and that's seven species, and that's uh, what they call a plains game hunt. So you're not going after your what do they call it, the dangerous dangerous eight or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but uh, that includes you know your 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 boarding and food and drinks and whatever else. But you also need to keep in mind if you're getting any of this stuff taken care of through a taxidermist, that's going to cost you, um, and. Also, you got to tip your guide, so.
0: Gotcha. And then,
1: of course, your airfare.
0: Yeah. So, uh, overall, uh, first question is, did you get any of those animals that you shot over there? Because I'm seeing a picture of, what, a wildebeest, and yeah. uh, is that a, a uh, that's not a kudu. What's that? No, that's, uh, it's called a gimsbuck. Gimsbuck, yeah, gimsbuck. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. so those, are, those are the two that I was able to take with, with a bow and arrow. Okay. Okay. Um, so essentially, is, is, is what happened is, is kind of starts out as a sad story, I guess. Because flew on um, British Airways, and they lost my bow on the way over there. Oh shit! And, oh, shit. Yeah, this was my, you know, my Matthews bow. Um, I had it all set up for taking African game, and I had practiced with it for a year, you know, with the you know, perfect arrow weight and perfect broadheads and everything. Um and my heart sank when that that bow did not make it there. So I ended up having to use borrowed archery tackle. My guide who was outstanding guy, he was, you know, able to last minute borrow a bow from somebody, get it set up to my draw length and you know, set up with arrows and everything, whole nine yards. Only issue was it didn't have a kisser button, which I'm used to shooting with a kisser button. Yeah, yeah. And I had shot, you know, we went out to some spot and stock on some animals. I shot out and missed, I think, a couple warthogs and ended up missing one Gems buck and just wasn't really going my way. And then um, I was really – I was so upset because – I'm not upset, but I was kind of down. I wasn't having as much fun as I could have been because every evening my dad and his long-term buddy from, from high school, they were out hunting with rifles, and they had a story to tell every single evening around the campfire when we were having drinks after everybody hunted, and I, I was still empty-handed. And uh, I texted my wife one evening after Pride, I'd say about, I don't know, if, maybe four or five days into hunting and being discouraged. I texted her just, you know, because she's my wife, I guess, telling her how upset I was about the them missing my bow and whatnot. And she made a very valid point. She said, we can replace your bow. That's that's not a problem. He said, what you cannot replace is this time that you're spending with your dad. She said, I know you're a diehard bow hunter and you know, you, you don't want to hunt with anything else but but a bow and arrow, but you need to swallow your pride, pick up a rifle, have fun with your dad, and that's it. She said, because you can't get that time back that you, you're spending right now in a different country on the other side of the world on a hunting trip with your dad. And I said, okay, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go out and hunt tomorrow with bow and arrow. If I don't get anything, I'm switching over to the gun. And that's exactly what I did. And that that exact same day, um, I ended up putting a stalk in with, with my guide. We put a stalk in on, on that blue wildebeest. And on our way stalking towards that blue wildebeest, we came up on a pair of Gemsbuck that were feeding and working their way towards us. And after crawling around on rocks and everything and getting within 50 yards of these Gemsbuck, I drew back and made the shot. And I wasn't too sure of the shot. We just weren't really seeing a whole lot of blood. So we start tracking this Gemsbuck. And we totally forgot about the blue wildebeest at this point. Tracking this Gemsbuck. And uh, as we're tracking it, we end up coming up on the hill where this blue wildebeest was. And I guess kind of like our rut over here with whitetails and other species. This blue wildebeest actually had his own hill with rubs all over the place. Um, instead of scrapes though, he had piles of his own dung right there, which I guess that's how they leave their scent to warn all the other, uh, male blue wildebeest that that's his, uh, his, um, mating territory. And we get, we start getting closer to this blue wildebeest while we're still tracking the Gemsbuck. buck. And he noticed that we were getting too close and he started grunting at us and scraping his hoof into the ground and my uh my guide he said danny he's at 52 yards (laughs) so i drew back on him and he was uh completely broadside i drew back on him let the arrow fly and he kind of jumped the jumped the string i i guess is what you call it just like white tails do he kind of jumped the string on me but instead of squatting down he actually spun towards me and my arrow actually stuck him right in the jugular (laughs) impacted in his spine Dropped him like a bag of rocks. Wow. And wow. I'm, I'm standing there with this g- giant deer and headlight stare with a borrowed bow in one hand. And <laughs> I, look, I look at my guide and he goes, Danny, congratulations on your first blue wildebeest. <laughs> Man, and that's uh, we shook hands and we went up there to celebrate this blue wildebeest. who's, you know, laying there with my arrow sticking out of his neck. And while I'm celebrating with this blue wildebeest. Our, uh, our tracker starts yelling at us in, uh, in an as the language they speak over there because my my gems buck jumped up from behind one of the bushes and started taking off. So we end up going after the gemsbuck and we came up close enough to, to him as well and I ended up putting another arrow in her and called it good. And let's just say I celebrated really hard that night back at the <laughs> back at the campfire. And my dad, he was, I think, just as tickled pig as I was that I actually got something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But after that, I, I put the bow down and picked up the rifle and uh, went to the gun range. They had to kind of coach me on how to properly shoot a rifle because I've been bow hunting for so long. Yeah. And yeah. I went out there and I just had a blast. Just, you know, I started, I shot everything that was on my list to include a baboon and a warthog, one zebra. um and one, uh, what they call a greater kudu. And it was, I tell you the truth, man, I, I had the time of my life. It was it was a, definitely a very memorable hunt. Yeah. Yeah. I got a lot got of a things lot. that I want to do on my
0: end first, but I'm not counting Africa out. I think that's something that I'll right. do when I get a little older. And after I've checked off some more North American species, like, yeah. you know. But I, I think you know it'd be something. I think it would be awesome for me and my wife to go uh, to Africa at some point and and do. That would be cool. Yeah, um,
1: she doesn't she doesn't hunt as well though, does she? Well, she does. She will. Okay. Cool. I, I, I right. think
0: I think now she's taking that turn. Right. She's starting to get in okay. into it a little bit more. She went shotgun hunting uh, this year with me for for deer. Um, okay. But, and I think if I can talk like we've even. This is crazy, but we've even discussed uh, antelope hunting as well, so cool. uh trying to go out uh, out west and and maybe get her a rifle antelope that would be awesome yeah. but man I, i'm not I'm not gonna count Africa out yet, so that's uh yeah. something that uh, I'll have to do a lot of thinking about so just for, so everybody knows roughly or and what I have to look forward to was that a was that like a ten thousand dollar trip for you?
1: Uh, so it's shy of ten thousand. I think altogether trophy hunting—I'm sorry—trophy fees, um, the hunt itself, and taxidermists' airfare. I think it maybe came out to—I want to I wanna say about six or seven grand—is what I'm estimating. Oh, okay, I got gotcha. you. Yeah,
0: I got gotcha. you.
1: Yes. Yeah, so a lot of people don't realize this, but for the for the price of going to Africa, um, is about the same price as actually it's cheaper to go to Africa. And take seven species than it is to pay for a guy to take you somewhere through Colorado or Wyoming and and take one bull elk. Yeah. You know. That's nuts. Yeah. So
0: did you get any of those species taxidermied?
1: I did, yes. I I couldn't pass it up. Um, Of course, I got the wife's approval on which ones I was going to get shoulder mounts on. And she definitely said no to the warthog. <laughs> and she said no to the to the blue and the black wildebeest. <laughs> and no to the baboon. <laughs> gotcha.
0: But the yeah, rest. So, so what did you get taxidermied from that
1: trip? I got a shoulder mount of the Greater Kudu. And I got a shoulder mount done on the uh on the Gemsbuck. Okay. Um the, the rest are just skulls and, and hides to you know, hang up here and there. Right.
0: So, do they do the all the taxidermy over there, and then ship you a crate?
1: Yes, exactly. In fact, I just found out that my my ship has just arrived in country, and uh, when I get off work Thursday morning, I it looks like I can go. I can go pick it up. So awesome. Yeah, so what's that? Excited. What's that cost to to get that uh, taxidermy? The taxidermy total bill, I think, came. I want to say about three thousand. Okay. No, well, I'm sorry. That's uh, twenty five hundred, I think. That's not as
0: bad as I thought
1: it would. No, be. no, definitely not.
0: Huh? Well, and that—that's—that yeah. wasn't—that's on top of the six
1: thousand that you already told me, right? No, that—that—that's basically the six thousand total, include taxidermists, hunting, oh, okay. all that stuff. I'm just estimating about six thousand with with all that stuff. Gotcha. Maybe seven thousand. Okay. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad. Well, I tell yeah, you if what, my wife's listening, if my wife's listening, we're gonna go with six thousand. <laughs> <laughs> amen.
0: Amen. Well, I tell you what, Danny, man, I really appreciate first off, thanks for your service. Uh second Thank you. I appreciate uh, the support. Yeah. And, and second, thanks for taking time to hop on the podcast today, man. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, man. I like doing this stuff and talking about hunting stories and whatnot. It's it's a good time. Well, uh,
0: Good luck on all your uh, other adventures that uh, come your way and uh, maybe we'll uh, we'll talk again.
1: Yeah, it sounds good, man. Good luck to you as
0: well. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another podcast in the books. Huge shout out to Danny for hopping on and chatting with us today, man. Loved that BS session. Huge shout out to all of you again. Thank you for taking time out of your day to download to listen please go wherever you you uh, download the podcast leave a review right thank you very much for that a uh, huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast uh, that is exodus ozonix wasp lone wolf deer lab prime ripcord and hunter safety systems uh, follow us along on social right instagram and facebook not only uh, the nine Finger chronicles but the Sportsman's Nation as well. You know, keep an eye out for that. Lots of content coming through uh, this channel. So, please, if you haven't already, go and visit sportsmen'snation.com And that's M-E-N-S, sportsmen'snation.com If you haven't visited the website, man, we don't just have podcasts, We have written articles, and we also have videos there as well. Uh, My man Parker from Southern Ground is putting out some kick-ass vlogs, so uh, keep an eye out for that. Um, You know, and like I said at the beginning of uh, uh, the podcast, man, just go spend some time with your family. It's very important. Uh, If there's someone you're holding a grudge against uh, within your family, uh, it's not worth it. Right. If it's it's just not worth it. Uh, so call them up, talk to them, get everything out on the open, talk about it, put it behind you, because we all die at some point, and uh, it's not worth going to the grave with a grudge or going to, I don't know. So hopefully everybody has a great rest of the week. Hopefully. We have a positive week, right? And uh, our friends at Hunter Safety Systems are reminding us, if you're going to be in a tree, wear your damn safety harness.